This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios, looking out onto Locust Walk on a beautiful June. It feels like spring, but in fact it's summer. June morning. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy, collaborator, faculty colleague, Shane Jensen. Morning, Shane. Morning. How are you doing? I'm well, Shane. I'm well. Looking forward to hanging out for the next couple of hours talking sports analytics. Catching up with Shane, one of my buddies. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's been a lot going on. There's been a lot going on like last twenty, like things. eighteen hours or so in I'm, terms uh, of a World Cup ca- shenanigans. Seriously, there there are. Um, just me think you're on top of the world. We we have some late breaking news we want to dive into. We're going to be here for the next two hours. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, eight to ten Eastern. You can join the conversation. We wish you would give us a shout. One eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four. Nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us businessradio at seriousxm dot com. Businessradio at seriousxm dot com. We're also on Twitter. It's a great way to reach out to us at wmoneyball at wmoneyball. You can send a question that way. You can make an observation. You can send us an over under. We do an over under segment at the end of every show. Give us a number you think might work there. We also follow all of our guests, so it's not a bad way to stay on top of the world of sports analytics at W Moneyball. We have guests at the bottom of this hour and the top of the next hour, as usual, between now and then, open line. Shane, I'm curious, always curious, what has caught your eye in the world of sports lately? Well, I guess uh, most of my focus, like over the last week, is getting kind of hyped for the World Cup. Um, And uh, there's a lot of, I mean... I don't know if we want to talk current World Cup or future World Cups first because there's been news in both those tell, tell, directions. Tell us, tell us, tell us. Well, let's talk about the uh, the announcement basically yeah, that it's a the huge deal, right? 2026. You're Canada, just excited because you're Canadian. I know. No, Canada, <laughs> the U.S., and Mexico are going to jointly host the 2026 World Cup, which I think is pretty exciting. I, I'm, I haven't actually heard much about the logistics of that in terms of. I mean, obviously they'll spread out it across cities and stuff like that, but the host country usually is automatically in the World Cup, right? Oh, right. Interesting. And are we now, do we now have three host cups? Because no, usually, like, Canada from North America... soccer in Canada? I know. Well, I mean, Canada hasn't made a World Cup in a long time. They, they actually do have a team, and they do compete for the World Cup. But it's very hard for Canada to get in, because usually Mexico and the U.S., uh, usually I think there's only, like, three teams from North America that qualify anyway. Well, apparently they're expanding the field, which is remarkable. Well, so it's 32, and they're going to go to 48 by 2026. Wow. And so okay. I, I, I didn't even countries. hear about that because I was going to wonder, like, oh, does this mean that North America gets somehow extra entries compared to what they usually they, do? But it sounds like everybody gets every, extra entries. Everybody's going to get extra entries. Maybe they'll put Canada in a Have week, you, have you heard much pool. about how that actually is going to is, – is there going to be, like, just that many more groups and that big, much bigger of a – yeah, that's know. insane. It's, I mean, it's already a lot of soccer to yeah. play with thirty-two. With yeah. thirty-two, so and I love the structure of the World Cup. I think part of the fun of the World Cup is the way it's put together. No, they uh, they designed this tournament well. I have to say, um, 
I think it's kind of interesting this time around somehow um, coming back to the current World Cup that we don't really have any of these sort of traditional groups of death so much. I mean, there's a couple groups that you look at that are a little bit more look a little bit more challenging than others um, for the underdogs, but um, but nothing like we've had in past years. You know, my understanding is they changed the way they built these groups. Yeah. And given that they seem fairly built this year, it just makes me wonder, what the heck were they doing before? I mean, why was it that they would have groups of death as opposed to doing something reasonable? Yeah, like I, I mean, out? it's kind of interesting. They kind of have a group of what, whatever the opposite of death is. The easy, Like, the, the group Russia somehow found itself somehow. in. Somehow. Somehow, right. No, I'm, and I'm sure there wasn't any... Sketchiness that went behind to that, dude. dude I, I, we, I took, I took Russia in in my World Cup pool. The, we had a little draft the other well night. Well done, over, by over the dinner. way. Well, well you know, done. Look, I they got no. I, they got I, nobody. Used, I used to work in Russia. I speak yeah. a little bit of Russian. I've got a soft spot for Russia. Yeah, but it's hard to pull for Russia in the age of Putin. I mean, in fact, it's, it's yeah, no, that's, that's in fact it's true. It's kind of easy to pull against them. Yeah, and, and yet, look, they 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 have more potential for corruption than any country. In the world, and this is the most corrupt sport in the world, and they're hosting. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to guess they're going to perform reasonably well. Yeah, <laughs> you think they'll get the, you somehow? Think they, you think they'll get the calls? Yeah, you know, yeah, I'm thinking probably. they might. That they might. They might outperform. They probably. might outperform in this tournament. Right. Right. Um, so, what else are you excited about? Oh, you know what? About the other news. The other news overnight yes. is that Spain. Fire the coach. Fire their coach. What, like you know, the, forty-eight the, hours before the competition starts. This is one of the heavyweights of the tournament. This yeah. is one of the four big teams in the tournament. Yeah, and it's really interesting because it seems like it's just sort of like, I, I mean, you know, the, the the story as I've heard it is, of course, the, the coach had agreed to go to Madrid after the World Cup, um, and somehow the governing body of Spain. Did not like that he'd made that agreement without without involving yeah. them, without yeah. notifying them. Yeah. Like they, I think the thing is, look, they, you can't call me five minutes before. Yeah, you know, you make the public announcement and say that you've negotiated this deal. The national yeah. team, the national team's coach has negotiated this yeah. deal to go coach for Madrid. Yeah, so I mean, that seems like kind of a, a bad mood on move on his part. But I, uh, it's obviously firing him forty eight hours before the World Cup is not. Um, going to help the team? No, I mean it, it, it's it's it, from what I've read, the players are not uh, for this move, w- right? Well, some of yeah. them are going to he's going to be coaching them, right? Yeah. So the team is made up. Madrid and Barcelona obviously have been heavily represented by Spanish players historically, so a lot of those guys play in for the national team. Yeah, you know, so it complicates his life a little bit, but firing him complicates it even more. <laughs> <laughs> but let's not begrudge them this. I yeah. mean, they're, they're acting on principle. We, we, we bemoan the lack of principles in soccer, and here is what looks like a principle stand by the national team. I don't know. Maybe it's just a pissy begrudge thing, but maybe it's principled. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, it just does seem so disadvantageous as a move for the actual That's team That's the point success. of principles. What's the point of principles if there are no costs? I suppose, but... <laughs> You know, seriously. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm not saying it's no. I'm I'm, I'm honestly curious whether this is just a pissy thing or whether yeah. there's actually a good principle they're leaning on. In which case, we should celebrate it because soccer is, you know, a little. Well, no, I, and and if this somehow was was if 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 his move somehow like was, you know, there there's some kind of corruption behind his move, or or there was a principle against something that was, you know, kind of bad for the sport. Other than kind of polit- you, know, right. you know, sort of internal like right. national politics or whatever, corporate politics, then that's, that's you know, I, I, I get it. I just, you know, 
If it really is okay, you're the principle saying that you shouldn't, you know. National team's interest above all else. Get over yeah. the egos. If these guys are just responding to egos, fine. Okay, where, 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 who do you like to pull for? I mean, is Spain. Is Spain oh, Iceland, is Spain man. A, Okay. I mean, I, I mean, I mean. First, who? What, let's talk about the countries I'm actually pulling for, and then we should probably talk about actual contenders that I'm pulling for. Okay. So I'm pulling for Iceland. Yes. Because I think per, it's, the whole it's, per capita thing. It's fantastic that country's there. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's got probably less people than you know, Center City, Philadelphia, and and they're on the national stage, international stage again, and they also obviously already. Uh, did well at the last Euro Championship as well. Did, did knock England down to the Euros. Yeah, yeah. So okay. I would love, I would love for Iceland to, uh, you know, make some moves. Sure. They're they're in a tough though. I mean, obviously they are not favorite. They're in a Group D. They're in with Argentina, uh, Croatia, Nigeria. Um, Those all, are all legitimate. All teams. of which are better teams than Iceland. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they're. I mean, they are definitely going to have to be a Cinderella story again. But wow. I mean, why not? Wow. Why not? Okay. You who, know who? Who else? Um, okay, so now sentimental, among, sentimental favorites, right? So now among contend like like teams okay. that probably will contend for the World Cup. Okay, um, actually Argentina, same group. I, I actually am kind of pulling is that for a messy thing. Or is it yeah. is it a uniform thing? It's. I mean, they do have great uniforms, no <laughs> doubt about it. I think it's. It, it is a messy thing. I think he's. You know, certainly this is last. He, he he might be the greatest of all time as yeah. far as soccer players yeah. go, yeah. Yeah. and I think the one thing that's kind of missing from his kind of portfolio of success is a lot of success with his national team. Yep. And yeah, I mean, I would love for him to make a run. And obviously, they came as close as you can come last World Cup to to getting it all, and then he just right. fell too short. I remember watching him get the. Golden Boot or whatever oh my the award he, was, he, he was he so did not look going good. up in the stands. He was he was the saddest award winner Seriously? of all time. Seriously. Yeah, no, and and I mean, so I, I that that I, I guess that gives me kind of a you know it's not a super strong preference, but Argentina is going to be the one I'm kind of pulling for in this so, one. You know, we is there any is there any tiredness with the messy thing is we usually get tired of our of our great players like we love them for a while and then the hype is so much that yeah. we, it kind of goes against but I, them. I feel like somehow so, well I don't I and again I I guess I don't follow uh soccer on the club level enough probably to have been exposed to the extreme hype of his entire career to me he seems like such an understated sort of personality um that I I don't think there is an overhype to him Mm-hmm. Like you look at somebody like uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, and I feel like that guy—I mean, that guy actually—I think probably gets an adequate amount of hype. He's he's amazing, <laughs> but right. you know, he would be somebody that you could probably claim was more overhyped because his his personality, to a certain extent, I guess, matches his kind of on you know on field performance. Yeah. You know, so Messi keeps it keeps it. Or somehow Messi does have this more understated demeanor that, at least to me, means he doesn't sort of seem overhyped. So one of the one of the great breakout players in the last year or so has been Salah for Liverpool. Who yeah. is Egyptian. So yes. he's gonna be playing for Egypt, which, you know, probably not the favorite. So they're like two hundred to one, which is a, very near the bottom. No, I mean they do have a relatively open group there. I mean it's interesting because that 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 group A, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Uruguay. I mean Russia. I mean Russia's. Yeah, whatever. Um, and I mean, Uruguay, both Uruguay and Egypt are sort of like these teams that are. Again, they have the kind of one superstar, mm-hmm. um, and then we don't really know much about them beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always interesting to see whether one superstar can kind of 
carry your team. Uh, I, it has definitely happened in the past, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and you know, I just hope he doesn't get bitten or something like that and knocked out of the tournament. So I I uh, I ran across some data that were interesting. There's if you're trying to get some numbers for the contenders in the World Cup, a decent way to do it is to scrape the betting odds. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a there's a, there's a, we should do this. I got this. I got this off of Twitter from Lionel Page, who's an academic out of the UK, who's both a quant and a sports guy. And super smart, but he got it from somebody else. And it, but it's a really nice look at data, the World Cup probabilities through the betting numbers. And mm-hmm. so, on the one hand, we think this is probably about as good as we can do. On the other, we probably need to keep our eye on where some biases might be. But listen to what he did. He this guy goes and scrapes all the you know I don't know twelve, fifteen houses online sport 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 sports lines sports books, and uses that to calculate the win probability for the tournament. And from that infers the strength of every team, mm-hmm. given the probability. So you can do kind of an ELO or ELO okay. rating for each team. You can also presumably do ELO based on their recent performance. So that may not be as indicative because well, those teams do change that's the composition right. that's a right. lot over a well, couple years. But his whole thing, and this approach is, yeah. we're just going to use betting markets yep. to infer yep. the probabilities. But we're going we're gonna to go beyond just winning the tournament to we're going to calculate their team strength, implied team strength from those probabilities. And then with that, we can simulate the whole tournament. Yeah. And now we can give you probabilities for advancing you know, out of the group stage, to the quarters, to the semis, et cetera. So I've, I've, I've got the – he posted those yeah. numbers. We've got those numbers. Yeah. And so let's just run through what we find. So the in terms of win probabilities, this is betting market win probabilities – and there, the Brazil and Germany, I think this that's not going to surprise me. Are yeah. the two favorites, both at about sixteen percent to win the whole thing, followed quickly by Spain and France. Now that's pre. Yeah, it's, uh, it'll be really interesting to see how Spain's odds move over the next couple of days. Right. So those are the big four, kind of head and shoulders above yep. everybody else. Then the next group, Argentina and Belgium, at eight eight percent and seven percent, and then England coming in seventh. And then a group, you know, now we're kind of flowing into a bunch of equally, like Portugal, Uruguay, Croatia, yeah. Colombia, Russia, not too far behind. So those are the top, so 12 or, or, or so according to mm-hmm. the betting probabilities. And Russia is, I think, probably only up there just because, like up there above the kind of rest because of that group that they ended up in. You know, probably the group, but, you know, God knows. Maybe people I mean, are there's, there's, there's a host country effect kind of at the best of time. You, you know, every World Cup, and they're certainly going and to. And then somehow magically things happen in Russia that. Yeah. Wouldn't be expected. Uh, there, and then you can also look at ELO rating. So that's not just a reflection of team strength, the win probabilities. That's also the path because yeah. people have different groups. But if you just look at who are supposed to be the best teams, and now we're not looking at FIFA ratings. We're looking at the actual ELOs implied by the by the betting probabilities. We get Brazil pretty clearly the best team. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with their path. Yep. Remember, Brazil, Germany, and Brazil are real close to the same on winning the thing, but they have Brazil as the best team. Germany. Well, it does have to do with their path in the sense that this ELO rating is based on their betting odds, and those betting odds presumably incorporate their path. Right, but they're going to consider the path and infer a clean ELO yeah, rating. Yeah. No. I. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's it's, it's going to condition out the path essentially yeah, okay. to give us a pure look at the ELOs, yeah. and they they're ranking the top. Let's just go through the top ten teams: Brazil, Germany. 
Germany and Spain, not that different. And then mm-hmm. it dropped down to Argentina and, and Argentina and France basically equal. But you can see that France dropped yep. relative to their, to their win probabilities. And then Portugal, England, and Colombia. One of the things you can do then is ask, you kind of get a strength of schedule. Mm-hmm. If you look at the difference between the the win probability yeah. and the ELO, it tells you the difficulty of the path in a, in, a, in a rigorous, quantified, systematic way. Yeah, and you see these teams like France popping up as an easier route. Um, you know, it may be because of not just their group, but also who they're paired with that they come out of the group. That's right. That's right. Because we do kind of know. It's kind of an interesting structure where we know which groups pair up against each other in the quarterfinals. Mm-hmm. Then, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Anyway, you Other. can use – it was a nice exercise, and it wasn't my exercise. Mm-hmm. I borrowed somebody else. I did add the strength of schedule bit, which is kind yeah. of a, something we always worry about in football quite a bit. And it ma- it matters. It matters – it seems to matter less this year than in previous tournaments because they've evened up the groups a mm-hmm. fair bit. But groups still are different, and yeah. the pairings after the groups. Because so, we talked we talked last week with some with an English soccer analyst who's pulling for the England side, of course. And they're, they're not only – they've got a they've got a – They've got Belgium in their group, but they're also paired with Panama and Tunisia. So they're favored to come out of the group. But if they come out of the group, the quarters are with uh, with Group H next which to Which is them, not bad. Which is a great one to be quartered with yeah. because that's a, that's a weak that's a weak yeah, yeah. that's a weak group. So that's our take. We're gonna we're gonna come up here in just a few minutes. We're gonna talk to a friend of ours, Alec, Chris Alexopoulos, who is a longtime soccer producer at ESPN, and he's you know ESPN ESPN isn't carrying it this year. I don't think no it's fox and so it's a big change for him not only that but also the u.s team being out of it so we're gonna we're gonna pick up chris and get just a take this isn't gonna be a full guest spot just kind of get a sense from him of what what his take is on the tournament and what he's and what he's doing but um we've got a little bit to do between now and then what else besides soccer well i mean we should probably talk you know talk about the nba finals that have ended all right i mean i guess it wasn't the most exciting end can I? Can I? I think anticlimactic is a yeah, fair word. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, it was an exciting game one. Well, it was fun. I mean, it was exciting playoffs. I would say. I mean, the all the way until yeah. You know, no, third I, game I, I mean, I mean, they did their best to throw uncertainty into a certain outcome. <laughs> you know, there was there was a lot of hiccups along the way. We ended up getting the exact thing I predicted from the start of the season. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were there were some exciting times along the way. No doubt about it. Um, what do you think it bodes for the future? I mean, is, do you think LeBron's probably leaving? Well, right. Cleveland. I mean, where LeBron ends up is the biggest variable. That until that sort of like is realized and we know where he is, I mean, all all bet all bets should be off. I wouldn't want to bet without that knowledge. Basically, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, whether he if LeBron goes to the Lakers, that's going to be very different for the entire outlook of, of next year than if LeBron goes to the Sixers, than if LeBron goes to the Rockets. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I assume those are... Or if LeBron stays in the Cavaliers. I don't know if there's any other um, kind of those contenders the in the four. And people are pretty skeptical about his staying in Cleveland yeah. at this point. My, I gather that he's probably not going to stay in Cleveland. I would, I would guess not. I mean, certainly, you know, if, in terms of maximizing one's kind of chances for, like, another run or two at, at at the championship, you have to think the Sixers or Rockets would be favored in that calculation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It really depends on what he kind of wants to do with his legacy. I guess if he wants to rebuild, you know, help be part of a rebuild, you know, the Lakers. I, I'm not sure how the Lakers are entering into this other than just sort of it's L.A. and therefore people are. I, I understand he's got two 
large homes in Los Angeles. Oh, two, two. okay. So, you know, we worry about, you know, what's his calculus, what he's trying to accomplish. Yeah. What if he's like, what if he's okay with his legacy and he wants to enjoy and life it, a Yeah, bit? well, right. He's sort of semi-retired. He's going to do the slow phase into retirement. He's just going to. I mean, he's the competitor. He's going to, he's, he's going to, God knows he's going to. He's gonna, he's right. Gonna, I'm inferring based on what I know about LeBron that he's going to want to drive for more championships. You know, I mean, that th- this is a person who has less trophies than he should, really, yeah, given sure. the number of teams he's dragged yeah. to the finals. Yeah, yeah So yeah. I think he probably wouldn't, you know, if I was LeBron, I'd be like, well, can I get a couple of you two ones, please? <laughs> well, you know, life in Los, I mean, I love Philadelphia, but yeah. it's a different life here than, than Southern California. And his, yeah. his son's playing high school basketball out there. I don't, a lot mm-hmm. of personal things pushing mm-hmm. on the yeah. Laker direction. Yeah, It'd be so you. much fun if he were here, though. What, what about the Celtics? They've got their own Irving drama. He's saying basically, yeah, I'll deal with this contract thing at the end of next year. I'm not going to do an extension now. Yeah. Which, you know, I, th- I think is reasonable for him, but it, it's, it raises a, some uncertainty in a club that people are very optimistic about right now. Yeah, that's right. And I think, I mean, unfortunately, it sounds like he they're going to just have to let it ride and sort of see how next season goes and try and, um, you know... I, I mean, I w- if I was Boston, I'd be very optimistic, especially if LeBron somehow moves out of the East, and all of a sudden they're like by far the like, right. um, you know, Sixers favorites for. Um, well, yes, but the Sixers. Was, I think the Celtics, as currently composed, like assuming everybody comes back healthy, yeah, the Celtics as currently composed on, are man. better it's, than a LeBron-less Sixers. Embiid and Simmons are going to grow up. No, Fultz no, is going to get his shot back. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think we are talking about probably, again, if LeBron leaves the East, we're probably talking about the conference finals right there, mm-hmm. the Sixers-Celtics. Mm-hmm. It'll be great, epic. But mm-hmm. um, anyway, I, I mean, I, I think for if the Celtics, I, I, I can imagine it being a little nerve-wracking that this sort of like player that you've kind of envisioned your team over the next few years being built in part around is not so certain he wants to stick around. I, I get that. But if you could, if you want to bet on anybody being able to accommodate that, Brad yeah. Stevens and Danny Ainge are probably going to be able to accommodate it. I'm definitely long Celtics over the next couple of years. Oh, yeah. Given, no, given I that. think so. I, I mean, I think even if LeBron stays in the East, I think the Celtics are built in a way that they're going to kind of compete and probably mm-hmm. be that kind of next team that's perpetually in the finals. Because that's apparently how the NBA works. You just have one team. <laughs> <laughs> from each conference that is perpetually in the that's, finals. That's and the, you just play each tradition. other like that's, four or five years in a row, and everybody's super excited about that. Hey, look, we look back on the Lakers-Celtics thing in the 80s in a favorable way. It was like it like defined an entire era of basketball. That's rivalry. right. That's right. No, it's true. It's it, true. It, it, somehow, I think they used to play maybe five-game series, best of five, in the early rounds back in that day. So mm-hmm. it wasn't quite the quite the slog through those yeah. early, the unnecessary slog in the early rounds. I don't know. What about the Rockets? What did we learn about the Rockets this year? Well, I mean, I, I, I think they I, I think they did a great job of beat it, building a team that could beat the, the, the Golden State Warriors. I don't think they could have done anything better. I mean, you know, I mean, they were... Very close to making it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I mean, one could argue maybe if Chris Paul doesn't get injured, they they Seriously, would have made that, it. That's that's what's so tragic, about you know. Um, it. I mean, look, look, look at look at what I mean. As inevitable as the Warriors felt beforehand, and yeah. as they as we make it seem afterward, it wasn't. No, inevitable. no, that's right. And I mean, I, I I'm one of these people that perpetuate this myth that the finals were locked in from the start of the season because I literally said that about ten minutes ago, <laughs> um, but. You know, the Rockets did—I mean, the Golden State is an incredibly well-built team. 
that you have to basically have, I think, essentially everything go your way to beat. And Houston almost had it. I mean, mm-hmm. Houston did their best to build a team that, you know, was there. And it was it came – I think that series did essentially come down to a coin flip, mm-hmm. more or less. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so if I'm Houston and I can kind of keep that team together as well, um, I've got to be pretty optimistic. Going forward, I think so, and and of course Daryl is always scheming mm-hmm. on player. I mean, yeah, you add LeBron and, or something to that. I mean, that's, that's a different. That's animal just altogether. like a mind blowing type thing. I don't, I don't know what that t- that would that would be unbelievable. They might just forget about the East at that point. We're just going to have a you know a, a Western finals, yeah, and, and yeah, that's going to be. They it. should have a crossover type thing where if the East is bad enough, like one of the West teams crosses <laughs> over or something that's like that. Not a bad strategy. That's yeah, not bad. What about the NHL, Shane? You know, you are of course because you're Canadian. Yeah. Our default. Yeah, and I mean, soccer, it was I mean, it, honestly, I, I think uh, for those of us that watched the NHL playoffs, it was an incredibly exciting. I mean, there were some amazing games, exciting teams, and I, 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 I actually love the fact that the Capitals won. I, I mean, it's similar to sort of how I talked earlier about how Messi. I'm kind of pulling for Argentina because I consider Messi one of the you know the greatest of all time, and I think like he sort of, I would like to see him get the biggest trophy that he can get. Um, Ovechkin, Alex Ovechkin, is one of the greatest hockey players that we've wa- ever watched. One wow. of the greatest pure scorers in the history of the NHL. Wow. Um, probably, uh, certainly a top 10 hockey player overall history. And again, the fact that he finally gets his Stanley Cup, I think, is a great thing. That it, what, what makes him such a great scorer? What attributes does he have? Well, I think, I mean, a, just shot accuracy for one thing. I mean, that guy can put it in the net from anywhere. And he's also, you know, um, he's a very complete player. He's 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 uh, he's got that sort of a little bit of that kind of what Sidney Crosby and Wayne Gretzky have had as well. This sort of sense of he knows where he, he just seems to have this like kind of knowledge of where every single player is on the ice around mm-hmm. him mm-hmm. and he can find the open guy or or in his case he can find the opening like he somehow get, i don't know how is he keeps getting open because everybody knows <laughs> he's an amazing scorer so just it's put me. like two dudes on him but it just doesn't seem to work was it disappointing to see the golden knights not quite get it done I mean, yeah. I mean, I, if if two teams could win the Stanley Cup at the same time, I would have liked both those guys to go. Uh, but I mean, I was pulling for the Capitals. I mean, I think the Golden Knights story is fantastic. It really is. Are they going to have the magic that carries over the second I year? I wonder. I mean, year? it'll be interesting to see how much that was just sort of a weird magic, or whether this is actually kind of a really well composed team. It's going to be interesting, depending on their leadership and coach. Yeah, and, and I mean, I, I, and and again, so much of their run was uh, was uh, Flurry's magic, the goaltending. Right. So we'll see if that. That carries right, over. Right. All right. So as we roll into the bottom of this hour, before we go, we want to catch up with our friend Chris Alexopoulos and get his perspective on the World Cup. Chris, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for making a, a quick minute for us. You're in, in, in and around the New Haven area. Is that right? Yes, I am. I am. It's such a lovely city. I love New I love New Haven. I'm like, I'm like, I like Miss New Haven. You're toting kids around to school right now, right? Thank you for no, making no, no, time, no, no, Chris. No, 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 they're they're done. It's last day. It's last day. Oh, oh, that's fun. Good fun. Listen, man, we only got you for a few minutes, and I, I could talk with you about this for a long time, as you know. But we just thought it would sure. be interesting to get your perspective on the World Cup on the eve of the World Cup. We the last time we talked to you was right after the U.S. was eliminated. 
I don't think you'd really yeah. recovered. It's been a few months now. You've probably got a different <laughs> perspective on it. But also, you've been producing. I mean, so Chris is the lead soccer producer at ESPN, has been for a long time. Produced many, many World Cup matches over over multiple World Cups, and you're and you're sitting this one out because Fox has it. So, just tell us from Chris Alexopoulos's life, what's what's the World Cup going to be like for the next few weeks? I, I have no idea. I, I haven't done this, and I, so I was gonna, I was gonna, I was thinking about it, and I have this is, see, I'm flabbergasted. Tomorrow is the first World Cup game that I won't be working on since the '94 final. Oh my god! So I actually, I don't know what to do with myself. Where do I watch? What do I do? What do I wear? <laughs> and what do and I do with? Well, is it also the first time the U.S. hasn't been in since about since about that long? Yeah, since 1986. And wow. so that's weird, too. Uh, you know, there's not really much to root for. There's not going to be any watch parties. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel like there's any of that. So it's uh, it's uh, it's more bizarre for me because because the, the work aspect is is missing. So right. it's hard for me to judge. So personally, I'm in like a, I'm in like a weird like I don't know what to do with myself. Right. Uh, spot right now. So, um, Chris, what happens? But, what, what happens up at the at the mothership during? Are y'all like boycotting because you're not carrying it? Like, look, we're not going to watch Fox. No, we're not going to pay attention to the World Cup. How, what is it like up there during this during this time? Uh, off the record or on the record? <laughs> oh I'll yeah, you're my, off the record, Chris. Oh yeah, we won't. Uh, I'll give you my I'll give you my half the record. It's uh, ESPN's always been a stick and ball place, and it's still culturally. You know, anyone who's above the age of 40 at ESPN doesn't really have soccer as part of their life or in their sort of okay. uh, in there. It's not part of the cultural fabric of, of ESPN. Sure. So okay. when the U.S. didn't make it, I think everyone was like, and it's on Fox. Everyone was kind of like, all right, we don't really have to. They're not going to do too much. There's there are some things. There are some reporters. There are some shows. But when you're on the outside looking in like the Olympics, where access is restricted, you can't even really air highlights at a, at a reasonable time. Uh-huh. So you're sort of locked out naturally anyway. It's not much of a decision to make. Um, it's just how much of an appetite do you have for people talking about games without seeing highlights associated with them. Right. So uh, so that's another part of the weird part of it. Okay. Um, um, and so, but there is, you know, anyone under the age of 40, everybody is really locked in. It's, uh, it's, it is really where you draw sort of a, a, a line. I mean, 40 is probably a rough sure. age, but sure. yeah, I mean, under the age of 40, everybody's locked in, you know, they're ta- everybody's talking about it. Start to see some jerseys around the office. All right. Um, you know, it's it, FIFA, EA, EA sports FIFA has, uh, you know, it has made it sort of a different world for, for kids. And now, you know that that group is growing up. So right. It's, it's interesting to watch the dichotomy in in house at ESPN right now. Chris, if you were producing for ESPN on this World Cup, what are some of the storylines you would try to highlight? Uh, for this World Cup, I think. Well, look, nobody wants to talk about it, but for from a from a quote unquote journalist perspective, as someone covering it, I, I think there's aside from the soccer, there's the news aspect. Is there going to be violence? Is there going to be hooliganism? I just two years ago, I was in France for the uh, for the uh, uh, Euros, and every match, let's say the first six or seven days, was marred by wow. some sort of incident outside the stadium. And in the case of uh, Czech Rep- uh, the Czech Republic against Croatia match, inside the stadium, wow. flares and and rockets going off. And if you ever haven't seen that or heard of it, and YouTube 
what happened in that game, you you would be like, wow, I can't believe I'm, that actually happened okay. in this day and age. Okay. So from a news perspective, believe it or not, that's actually what I'm looking for. Okay. From a soccer perspective, it's are the Brazilians and the Germans going to meet in the final? All right, that's the fantasy. Um, that's the fantasy final. Yeah, and there, I think so. And Spain's really interesting because they just fired their coach and just right. like moments ago named uh, Fernando Hierro as their brand as their new coach to go through the World Cup. So, okay. Um, and then I think the other team to watch for is uh, again this is on a personal note, but uh, Roberto Martinez is uh, is the manager of uh, the Belgian team, who's very talented and very good. And if he can put it together, I'm looking forward to. Uh, name dropping uh, him and saying that <laughs> I, I've, I've I've worked with him and and had many dinners and oh that's late night, great uh, late night drinks with Roberto so, oh that's awesome again from that's only from a personal perspective and I well Chris you're not the first person I'm be about it. no you're not the first person to pimp Belgium um, in fact we we talked to a soccer analyst last week and we asked for name a team who plays an exciting style just so, so the, us us <laughs> naive Americans without a team in there. <laughs> who might we enjoy watching? And he picked Belgium. So so you've got good company. Listen, Chris, we will let you go. We really appreciate your taking the time to jump on quickly this morning. And condolences on not having a team or, or producer responsibilities, but maybe there's a way to enjoy it in a different way that you'll, you'll love. I don't. Yeah. Hey, by the way, I'm, I thought you guys were calling. Honestly, I, I'm surprised to be just talking about the World Cup. I'm surprised we weren't talking about the, uh, the fact that the U.S. just, uh, got yeah, the yeah, yeah, that is no. We did ago. talk about that a little bit earlier on the show. It's very exciting. Oh, okay, we we it's, could uh, and and, and the expa- the expanding of the it's going to forty eight teams. Is that right? Forty eight. Yeah. Wow. 48, it sounds like uh, okay. Which is, uh, financially a gigantic impact. I know you guys got to go, but uh, we're going to get you back. For, that's for the next. Time. Maybe yeah. we'll get you back for a debrief. <laughs> we'll find out how you spent the last month um, after this thing is over, and we'll debrief what's going to happen in 2026. If anybody lives in New Haven and listening to this and knows where there's a good watch party, I'm in. All right. <laughs> good guess. That was Chris Alexopoulos, a senior soccer producer at ESPN Long Time. He's not producing a soccer game this year for the first World Cup. And since 1994. All right, that's one quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Here in Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy Shane Jensen. Our collaborators, Eric Bradlow and... Audie Weiner are out and about doing Eric and Audie things. They will be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join the conversation. Give us a ring. one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Open lines the full two hours. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Great way to reach us during the show if you want. We have responded to email live, but you can also reach us. Between now and next Wednesday, you might be listening to a replay. If it's not 8 to 10 Eastern, it is a replay. Good way to reach out to us mid, midweek. You can also follow us on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall keeps you in touch with all things sports analytics. Just off the phone for a quick six-minute chat with our buddy Chris Alexopoulos, ESPN soccer producer, getting some perspective on the World Cup. We're going to do more World Cup at the top of the hour. In this half hour, Jeff Cedar. Longtime friend of the show, Jeff Cedar. He's founder, owner, and president of EQB. If you know, if you've been listening, you know we talk to Jeff every year around the Kentucky Derby to get his take on horse racing. And we thought, given what happened this past weekend, it'd be good to hear from Jeff again. Jeff, welcome back to the show. 
Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here on Moneyball. Well, we appreciate you having, appreciate you making time for us. Always enjoy having you. We, um, you know, we look forward to talking to you every May. We literally look forward to talking to Jeff Cedar every May, rolling into the Kentucky Derby. And when Justify won last Sunday, we got to talking and thinking, look, we don't do enough debriefing. After the fact, let's get perspective from Jeff about what we've just watched over the last five weeks. Here's this horse. We talked to you maybe six weeks ago, probably, rolling into the Derby. And here Justify does this thing. If American Pharaoh hadn't done it last year, it would be the biggest story in sports right now. So we thought we'd check in with you and find out what you made of the race and what you make of the horse. And then we have a bunch of other questions we'd like to talk with you about. Okay. So one, I mean, did you like, you had a position on Justify, you know, six weeks ago. How did that bear out over the last five weeks? And then what were your expectations going into Sunday at Belmont? And and what did you see happen? Okay, well, uh, full disclosure, you know, I was part of the American Pharaoh, uh, the program that produced American Pharaoh. Yep. And uh, so I'm always comparing it to American Pharaoh. And yep. uh, Justify just kind of, you know, in the, it was the fog and the mud and uh, all that other stuff. But he just, you know, kind of just hung on in the Preakness. And then uh, three weeks later, he had, he had to do the uh, mile and a half, which is always grueling, not enough rest, longest race. And there were other horses that had better fit, what we call fatigue curves that looked like they had more stamina doing the analytics that I discussed. Yep. The lo- logarithmic uh, velocity decay curves that extrapolate what their times would be for a mile and a half. Right. And so I was disappointed that they didn't run. I think it's, this is the year of mismanagement because horses that could have uh, had better, I think would have had better mile and a half times were scared off. You're saying they didn't run at all. Not that they didn't no, perform. They didn't they weren't... One of them was in Baffert's barn. Audible. Well, there may be a reason he didn't run him. For, that's yeah, the case. There may be. There was another one in Baffert's barn that I won't even mention, and there were others. But they, I don't know. Joseph, I was a great big horse. He'd never been beat. He's enormous. And he scared him off. But, I, you know, I think he was beatable. And, uh, you know, I watched the race. It was very impressive. He's a terrific horse. Uh, we tried to buy him as a yearling at the, in the Kentucky in September as a yearling. He went for half a million dollars. Is that a lot and, or, is that, or is that not a lot? No, in the first book, that's not a lot. It, the, the superstars go for a million bucks. And, okay. Uh, he didn't have a great pedigree. There's no great at stakes winner in the first dam or the second dam. People say, well, he's a descendant of uh, Seattle Slough. Everybody's a descendant of Secretary <laughs> of the Seattle Slough if you go back a few generations. Hey, Jeff, and hold on, Jeff. What is the dam, and was, did the dam win great big grade one races? Did she produce great at stakes horses? The answer was no, 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 no. But, Jeff, and, I, thought you've, I thought you've told us, I thought if I've learned a few things from Jeff Cedar, one of them is that pedigree is overrated by typical oh, horse God, buyers. Pedigree is overrated, but in the market, it's God. It's a religion. I'm the... Uh, the Jew and the Baptist congregation when it comes to pedigree. <laughs> and then the, the uh, so then, and then we, he was on top on our list. We loved him as a yearling, not because of his pedigree. So uh, we had a hot bill battle to get people to pay uh, what we knew was going to be a top price for a horse that didn't have the, you know, the not killer pedigree. And then there were a number of vets who said, I don't think so. He's got, uh, I think the, the scope, the the scoop was what they call OCDs, osteochondritis lesions in his stifles, which is his hind legs. And they were worried, would they have to do surgery and this and that and the other? Maybe he wouldn't run as a two-year-old, blah, blah, blah. So he couldn't get anybody to pony up for the money. Hmm. And then the, the, the uh, Chinese did, 
And then he didn't run as a two-year-old. And nobody knows if he had surgery for those things, because they ain't going to tell you. Oh, wow. And they said he got hurt early, and they gave him time because he was huge. And maybe that's the case, and maybe that isn't. Anyway, so he comes into the race that way. And then uh, the, the fatigue curve, killer fatigue curve horses that I wanted to see run, don't even run, including the one at Baffert's barn. And then he, uh, he uh, you know, he runs it in a time that's eight lengths at the finish, eight lengths slower than what American Pharaoh did. Oh. The last, the last quarter mile was a full second slower. Wow. Second. Okay. You know, a second in world championship competition is, is forever, right? Okay. Okay. And so, uh, and then some people said. Then there was the whole thing about restoring hope. The uh, other Baffert, right? Horse. Did he did he run interference? Did he do this? Did he do that? That's such nonsense. Is it? This First is one of the all, questions we had for you. So the the claim by somebody else in the race. I'm not sure if this was a rider or someone who owned or trained the horse. Was that one of Baffert's other horses, which was not a favorite? Yeah, a restoring plate, hope was kind of a was kind of a bodyguard in a sense. He blocked yeah, he blocked somebody I think that's out. Complete nonsense. He came out there. And he did run all. He came first of all. He came out and ran about seven wide. So he was nowhere near anybody. He was on around the first, going out, coming out. Then he he drops in next to on the hip of uh, Justify for a while, which is a disaster, because they then he's drafting on him. And we did you know work in wind tunnels and this and that and the other. And when you draft right in the hip of a horse, you're adding two or three or more pounds dead equivalent dead weight to that horse. Is that making right? Him pull you. So it was, you know, if they were trying to help him, they were they were doing the opposite. And then before they even get to the last turn, Restoring Hope was dead, keeping up with Justify. He drops back to eighth or ninth. So he wasn't even there going around the last turn and coming into the stretch. So how, how did that make any difference? I don't think it made any whatsoever. Uh, that horse was owned by Gary and Mary West. Maybe just sending him out to run with Justify was not in his best interest. Right. But I, I don't know that horse that well. I guess Gary and Mary West would be the people to talk to about that. All right, all right. Well, the the um, you know, some of the questions. Well, a little bit more about Justify though. So people talk about his being a, him being a large horse. How much difference does that make? Is that a good thing in a racehorse? Not a good thing. It's and how how much thing. bigger? It's enormous. How if much you bigger? Go to the racehorse sales, and you know, I have these enormous databases, so I look at their size and weight, and height, and everything for the number of days they are old, right? Yeah. And compare it to everything else. Yeah. And it, uh, the number one most powerful statistical variable, and for the pedigree guys, this will make their head explode. It's better than pedigree. <laughs> is how big they are versus their other horses, their sex and age and days. Okay. Size, weight. And the biggest horses do better. Okay. And uh, they do a lot better. <laughs> so uh, and- it's a big deal. It's a longer stride. It's If they're a big athlete, you know, it's Shaq O'Neal versus uh, – Iverson. <laughs> what about what about injuries? Are they are the bigger horses more yeah, prone to injuries? The, ones are, the better ones go faster. They run in a style that's more efficient, but that's oh. more dangerous. Okay. And the bigger they are, the more weight there is, and then you know the more speed. Yes, it's more it's it's more dangerous. But okay. you know, it's like I was a motorcycle racer, and you know, if you didn't ride that bike right at the edge of crashing, you were not competitive. Right, and that's pretty much it with the racehorses too. Wow, wow, wow. All right. Well, we're talking to Jeff Cedar. Jeff is the founder, owner, and president of EQB. He's a longtime friend of the program. We're usually getting before the Kentucky Derby to, to introduce us to that crop of horses, but we're catching him afterwards to help us process and make sense of Justify's win as a triple crown um, racehorse. Jeff, one thing I was curious about, was it not impressive that Justify won in the slop 
at the Derby. And yeah, Preakness. the sort of variance of kind of terrain is something yeah. that was pretty impressive to me. At and least. It, was a, it was a very clean track at, 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 the, at the Belmont. There are no free agents. There's a lot of talent out there that when it gets tired, slows down. Yeah, it's and there's a lot of it. They don't like this. They don't like that. They don't like the slop. He ran slop, mud, fog, everything. Right. So in the fog, I thought in the Preakness, the fog contributed to the timing of the course, the closers. Oh, they didn't interesting. Get the timing right, and they just missed it. Oh wow, interesting. Okay. Because nobody could see what the hell was going on. So, so that's one. That's one thing to his credit, right? The horse's credit that they absolutely they was able no, to I do. That. I mean, he's a wonderful horse. Uh, you know, I was attached to American Pharaoh, so I'm inevitably going to make the competitions. And American Pharaoh went on to, you know, just be brilliant in the Haskell, and then he won the world championship and near track record kind of time. He just kept he was, and furthermore, American Pharaoh was not a big horse. He was just a phenomenal. It really is kind of uh, Allen Iverson versus Shaq O'Neal. Wow. Justify Shaq O'Neal and American Pharaoh was Allen Iverson. You know, Batford talked a little bit about the disposition of the two horses as well. So American Pharaoh is apparently a, a kinder, gentler horse. And he said this interesting thing about Justify. He said, Justify is not mean. He's just impatient with people. <laughs> he's got like five seconds worth of patience, and then that's that. Can you talk yeah, a little bit about what you've seen? with 1,400 pounds of muscle that's impatient. <laughs> I mean, that sounds dangerous. Experience. Yeah. You've got to be an expert not to be uh, end up smashed. So do you think that translate? does it matter, these dispositions? In what way do they matter to the trainer or to the jockey or to the horse's performance? It, it's critical that they, A, they will do what they're asked to do when they're asked to do it. If they're screwing around and you can't control the way, where they're on the track or when they, when they try hard, it's, a, it's very much of a uh, disadvantage. But do, you know, it, and, you, and if they run their race in a paddock, you know, if they're all lathered up and running around and you have to keep them from turning upside down, rearing up and stuff, I see. That's bad. Now, Jeff, to the to the to the uninitiated, you might have thought you'd want a little fire. You know, you'd think they could be too laid back, too gentle. You'd think you'd want a little fire in a racehorse. No, the ones that I had, one of the best horses I ever had. Man, he didn't give a damn. He just kind of <laughs> strolled into the paddock and looked around, and he didn't have a good pedigree. And he used to, he was one of the top ten horses in the country. And he used to kind of look at them all and say, "You want to beat me, you're going to have to run." And he didn't do squat till that gate opened, and then man. Good luck catching them. <laughs> All right. Listen, I, I, one of the things I really want to talk about today is Baffert. So this is the trainer for Justify. He was also the trainer for American Pharaoh. So he's just won back-to-back. He's won two triple crowns. I think he's one of two trainers ever to have done that. Um, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, when is it, when is persi- you know, persistent performance, like when does it mean something? When is it super impressive? It's easy. I mean, Baffert, you know, He's got this gray hair. He's always the one that got the camera on the audience. He's, he's one of the few real celebrities in horse racing. And I develop a kind of an instinctive short response. I want, I'm like, I'm going to kind of fade the hype a little bit. And I don't know if that's legitimate or not. So I guess my question to you is, to what extent is Baffert responsible for these Triple Crown winners? Or are there other factors that he's maybe got some kind of structural advantage and can take it, you know, kind of ride. I'm just trying to understand what's behind it. Okay, if you're a mem- in the industry, you know, you're deep in the, the game. I'll give you the cons first and then the pros. Okay. If you're deep in the game, you know that the average trainer, you know, is struggling to make his mortgage and he doesn't get a lot of good horses and he has to hustle them and he takes people breed nonsense and he has to take it and do his best with it. And uh, he doesn't have a farm system. Then there's the elite guys who, make themselves a record, and they start getting a farm system. 
So Describe uh, what you mean by farm system. A farm system means they have the reputation that people send them too many horses. And so they have, they can have a, a division at this racetrack, a division at that racetrack. Uh, Chad Brown has had something like 200 two-year-olds sent to him that he, mm. from which he can pick. Mm. With 200 horses, you can throw a dart, you know, and random, you're going to have a few real good ones, mm-hmm. right? So now you're, you're getting, and then the question is, if you're good enough long enough, you get the very best people at the other end, the best people who pick the horses and manage the horses and the best veterinarians and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it adds up. So, uh, I mean, they're only, it's a short list, like in any, any major sport or any major profession, you know, there aren't that many superstars, but there are superstars in picking horses and superstars that, you know, taking them on the farm and there's superstar vets and there aren't that many of those. And when you get Mm -hmm. to the top with Baffert, you've got the collection of those guys. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so you are being sent not just hundreds of horses in a farm system that almost very, very few people have, but you're being sent hundreds of the very, very of people scrounge every auction, every farm, every place around the world, the very best people who find the very best horses. And then where do they send them? Send them. They send them to a guy like Baffert. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he starts off with that. Okay. Got it. So if he wasn't a top trainer, with that behind him, he'd have to be bad. That's mm-hmm. number one. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the other thing is, I do this, too. And I have to manage horses for some of the major best stables in the country. I want to send it to Baffert. I have a very mm-hmm. short list. Mm-hmm. He, so I know that if I send that horse to Baffert versus if I send it to the average guy, I have a, a much, much better chance of getting a good result. Wow. So, so why is that? Because a lot of them are, there's a lot of great horsemen out there, but there aren't a lot of great managers. And a lot of them, or they don't have the support team to send them the horses to vet, to this, to that, the other. It's a very complex sport hmm. because there's money and tradition and, uh, you know, and passion in it. There's a lot of people who are very smart, very hardworking, uh, who, who go together in it, but there aren't that many of them who are great. Mm-hmm. And Baffert has a collection of those around him and behind him, mm-hmm. and it just makes a big difference. Now, mm-hmm. what does he do this different? Why do we want him? Because he doesn't screw it up. You know, the, there's hundreds of things you can do, little things that will cost you the race. He doesn't do them. What's an example? I don't know. They hire a new uh, night watchman, and he feeds them too much hay the night before because he mm-hmm. doesn't know enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a small injury. And he doesn't catch it till it becomes a major injury. Got it. He's got too many horses to look at. Okay. Uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. The he also has a feeding program. I mean, he's developed over the years. I mean, he has supplements and he has timing, and you get this at this point and that at that point toward the race. And blah. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a science, and it's sophisticated. Mm-hmm. And most people uh, they don't have that. And they then is it is it fair to say that he's out there's and this is jumping back to the cons a little bit, but then there's there's a strategic gamesmanship as well. So you're you're saying oh, that absolutely. He, there, he had other horses that he could have entered into the Belmont Stakes that your analytics showed were especially w- well wired for the longer distance, and he didn't enter those horses, or at least one. Well, of them. I don't think they know. You know, I'm on the oddball. They don't even know. They're more <laughs> traditional. He's fun, but if you want somebody who's the, you know, if you were hiring a lawyer, he'd be uh, F. Lee Bailey. You know, he's just so goddamn good at what he does. He's <laughs> terrific. But, you know, then all that stuff I listed you, but he's got behind him, you know, a, a, a machine. So. so who's another trainer that we should be paying attention to? If we want to kind of laud someone, you think it's just they might have a machine, but not as big a machine. But you believe in them as a trainer in the purest sense. Oh, boy. 
That's a hard one. You know who was great, never had a machine, was Billy Turner, who had Seattle Slough. He was how mm. it started. Mm. He's long retired. But he was just such a, a nice guy and a phenomenal horseman. What do you think made him such he, a phenomenal... He was like the psychiatrist for the horse. Ah, he okay. knew how to make him want to run. A horse would have a lousy record, you'd send it to Billy, and, and it, would, it would be killing itself. How? How does that happen? He, well, I'll give you one example. He had one that he said... Uh, he just walked it for a week before the race. No workout, no gallop, until it was crazy to want to run. Mm. He said, but it won't be fit. He says, it won't matter. He says, will just be more tired at the end. But he's going <laughs> to try real. And he didn't, and he won. That's awesome. Listen, Jeff, we have to let you go. I could talk with you about horses all day. Really appreciate you jumping on with us, helping us make sense of Justify and Baffert. I think, thanks for taking the time. I can, if you want me to say something else about a trainer, I've got a young trainer I like. You hear it. We got, but you got to be quick. Keith Nations. Keith Nations. And, and, and you won't, nobody will have heard of him, but Keith Nations, Penn National Parks. Take a look at him. All right. Appreciate it. That's Jeff Cedar, founder, owner, and president of EQB, longtime friend of the program here. He's usually giving us the highlight, the previews, the previews going into the Derby. Instead, this year, we thought we'd also catch him on the other side of the latest Triple Crown winner. That is the second quarter and first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Kate Massey hosting this morning with my buddy Shane Jensen. You can join us. Give us a shout. Number here is one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Boss man, producer Matty Dats standing by, sitting by actually the phone, waiting for your calls. You can also email Matt businessradio at siriusxm dot com. Businessradio at siriusxm dot com or add us. We're up on Twitter. The handle is at wmoneyball at wmoneyball four. All things sports analytics. We follow all of our guests. It's a great way to stay in touch with what's going on in that world. You can also send us questions. We'll have an over-under segment to close the show here in about 45 minutes. Want to pitch into that? Give us a number to work with. Would appreciate it. Just off the phone with Jeff Cedar, our go-to in the horse racing world. Shane, you're not known as a huge horse racing fan, but I think you were entertained by Jeff's segment. No, I mean, it's it's it's... No, I mean it's it, it's always entertaining to talk to Jeff. I, I love, uh, and, and it, it's honestly it's it's a sport I know very very little about. So it's it's cool to kind of get that insight and to sort of learn about. I mean, you know, again, like from past segments with Jeff, learning about like how important the actual kind of physiology of of the horse is, and and you know, we talked obviously today a little bit about the psychology of the horse and how you can actually sort of like you know potentially change the attitude of of of, of, of one of these creatures it's pretty it's it's cool i thought it was helpful to get background on the whole structure of the industry and when you see a guy like baffert and you, you hear he's a trainer mm-hmm. you know the picture of that is like a guy that's working and putting them through their workouts yeah, and yeah. stuff and it's a whole lot more than that he sits on top of a pyramid and there's there there's momentum to doing well in that industry yeah and so the fact that he was good early makes him great late, essentially. Yeah, and there's some right. real structural advantages at this point to people like that. Yeah, and it's actually kind of interesting because it kind of mirrors a lot of how actual, you know, you, you look at like a bio, like science, 
you know, a biology professor, I think a lot of the, the people have this image of like a scientific researcher at a university. He's like, you know, right there in the lab doing all the experiments himself. But what a really great biology professor is all about is surrounding him or her with like amazing people right yeah, and, and 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 it's really about it's it's much more about people management mm-hmm. than the actual kind of like you know like you know technical details of experimentation or whatever mm-hmm. and i think that's something that people don't from the outside don't necessarily realize about how science works now right that's a great analogy and um and uh, I, I think people miss it on both the academic side and the horse racing side so in this segment, we're going to talk a little bit more about the World Cup. I know I'm, I'm finding myself – I think we're, we're denied it for four years. You kind yeah. of mostly don't pay much attention to soccer. Maybe you watch the Euros in the in-between years. Maybe you yeah. watch the Champions League a little bit. But then there's just something you know special and different about the World Cup. I mean, I think I'm probably the type of soccer fan that – irritates real soccer fans and that I don't you know I get hyped about it only every four years and you know I kind of like you know I'm like oh this messy guy he's pretty good isn't he (laughs) you know and stuff but um I mean that's the way it is I mean it better than not getting hyped about even the world cup I suppose Mm -hmm. um but yeah no I I am actually pretty excited about it Mm -hmm. I'm I'm plotting out where to watch all these games well what are you gonna do well um so there's there's several kind of uh you know I mean the nice thing about Philadelphia is a very diverse city there's there's like bars that are like kind of country bit you know I mean you can go walk to Bauhaus Schmidt and watch the German games you can go like yeah to some other bar and watch you know the Egyptian games presumably stuff like that so I I just have to, I have to do a little research about I, I basically I'm going to try and pick a different you know kind of viewing location based on the nationality of the country does this involved. mean you're going to be in bars like in the morning so because these games are being played in Russia and not only Russia but some of it's like non-Western Russian. This yeah, no, like no, I, I, I understand, I understand. And if I have to do some day drinking in the middle of the summer, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll sacrifice for that. All right, so, but honestly, we're going to be getting these games way off schedule, right? Because we're, it's not going to yeah, be like I mean, Olympics, I, 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 also, I also am going to be in Europe for probably the, for the second half of the tournament, which will be really, you know, exciting and, and a little bit better aligned time-wise yeah. for, for the schedule. I mean, ironically, I'm going to be in Scotland, the Netherlands, and Greece, none of which are... <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to spend, you know, several weeks in Europe as well as America, and none of those teams are in it. But Do we still. have any insight into what happened to the Netherlands? Because this is the second cup in a row that they've missed after being a leading contender. After being the in the finals, the pre, you know, the, the one before that. No, I, I, I don't actually have much insight into what's going on with that, whether it's just sort of bad luck of the kind of qualifying. I mean, qualifying out of Europe is, 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 is just difficult. Hard. I mean, I mean you know, Italy, either. you know, mm-hmm. e- England has missed out in, in, you know, relatively recent recent history as well. Um I think they. I don't know if there's anything beyond just sort of the bad luck of of, of missing out in a very tough composi- mm-hmm. uh, qualifying competition. I mean, what the U.S. did to not qualify is much more sort of you know disastrous, You're right? Right, because right. they're kind of built to make it through. Yeah, and I mean the, the quality of competition in like kind of the the greater North America area is just not up to up to what the Netherlands has to go through every time they qualify. What do you think we're going to see from US fans this World Cup? It's almost like a natural experiment yeah. on how thorough soccer interest has really taken in mm-hmm. the country in the absence of a national in the absence of a national team. What kind of fervor do you think we'll see? Yeah, and I I I'm curious too. I mean, I'm, you know, an example, I guess, of somebody who I'm I'm getting pretty hyped about it. I mean, part of it it is going to hit us at a time when 
There's not, yeah, I mean, like, if you are an actual sports fan, why would you not get into it? There's not a, you know, it's not like we're being distracted by much. No. Other than the kind of, you know, like, kind of halfway point of the baseball season, which I, I will be watching, too. NFL, but that's not. NFL minicamps, mandatory minicamps this it's week. It's true. Come it's on. True. We're getting minicamps. reports about draft, No, and, and I mean, we, I, honestly, we could spend the last half hour talking NFL if you really wanted to. Mm-hmm. I, I would totally do that with you. Um, but. You know, I, it, we, we have time in our schedule for, for, for sports here with, with the NBA and NHL now having wound down. So why not get into it? Okay, how, how thorough is your knowledge? Let's, let's just... Oh, jeez. <laughs> here we go. Well, just, okay. group by Short group, answer is not quick, thorough. Real quick. Group A, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Uruguay. Who's coming out of that? Uh, Uruguay, I think, is, is, is pretty certain. Um, Russia Between Egypt and Russia, I mean, yeah, given the home field advantage, so to speak, uh, I would probably pick Russia. Yeah, there's got to be very little question. I would like to see but Egypt the, and Uruguay come out, but I think sne- it'll probably be Russia. And the sneaky thing to watch there is Egypt with Salah. Yeah. As that's, mm-hmm. that's like one of the, yeah, you'd yeah. really like to see him just last a little bit longer. Group B, Portugal, Spain, Morocco, and Iran. Is Portugal and Spain, they got both, they, shouldn't they have split those guys up, the Iberian Peninsula? Yeah, I know. No, it's 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 it's, it's tough. Um, I, I mean, I guess they won't, have to say, they won't have to... Face each other uh, until like the semis or something like that. Okay. Uh, but okay. yes, uh, but I, I think both Portugal and Spain make it out of that group. Now, is Ronaldo going to carry that team? How far? I think he can carry it pretty far. I mean, they're not a terrible. I, I mean, I again, you, they've been he, very I mean, competitive the last few cups. That's right? right. That's right. I mean, I mean, they won the Euro Championship a few years ago. Um, so no, I, I think I, they're clearly not kind of. I think among the top five or six teams, I think people would be surprised if they made him to the semifinals. But yeah, I mean, I think you'll definitely get them out of the group stage, and they could make a run. Why not? Group C, France, the big one there. Yeah, joined by Australia, Peru, and Denmark. And it's, I, I feel like I'm just picking all the European countries, but I think France and you know Denmark are probably going to be the ones there. Um, well, Australia is... always kind of excites, though. I mean, Australia brings it. I mean, I remember last World Cup, they had some amazing games, some really fun. You're sure not confusing with Olympic swimming? Yeah, well, maybe a little bit. So tell me about France. Well, you know, it's one of the it's yeah. the it's the one of the big European countries in soccer, but they've kind of got the distinct fifth best league. You know, you think about the Premier League, then La Liga, you got Italy, you got Germany, and then France is supposed to yeah. be there, but they're not quite. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, they, they, we don't hear as much about their league, and I, I just wonder if it's kind of like just because the power in that league is sort of so consolidated in one or two teams. Because you know, you uh, Paris Saint Germain, you often hear about, hear about like the, the champions club. of that league often club. do well on the kind of international Champions League stage. Yeah, it's just it's always those that, those same couple teams. Yep. Well, listen, for a little more expert take on the World Cup, let's talk to Stefan Samansky. Stefan is the co-author of Soccernomics. He's also professor of sport management at the University of Michigan School of Kinesiology. He's got a number of books, both for academics and general audience. He's got a he's got training in economic PhD in economics from the University of London. Delighted to have Stefan join us. Good morning, Stefan. Good morning. Pleasure to be with you. Pleasure having you. Appreciate you joining us. Where are you calling in from today? Uh, so I'm in Reading, which is a sort of satellite town about 40 miles west of London. Ah, I thought the Reading, there's also Reading, yeah, Pennsylvania. Yeah, Philadelphia has one of those satellite towns of Reading's, too. We're, we, we, we're, oh. <laughs> we're about to chastise you for not just being here in per- person, but I guess you've got a little uh, bit. 
You didn't offer to fly me in. I would have done so if you had. <laughs> we need to consider fly-in options. So, Stefan, listen, you know, you're, you're known for Soccernomics. You've been known for it for a, a few years, but you guys have just produced a new edition of this thing. So you guys can track, you can track down the 2018 edition. It's provocatively titled. The Soccernomics title has been around for a little while, but now they've gone in with this long subtitle that basically tells you what they're predicting here. And uh, if I can dig it up, where did it go? It's why England loses, why Germany, Spain, and France win, and why one day Japan, Iraq, and the United States will become kings of the world's most popular sport. I'm making up the last two words, but I think that's what it ends up saying. Yeah. So that's a provocative title. What do you, how did you reach these conclusions? Well, um, so we, we looked at developing models, sort of simple economic models that base performance in, in – uh, international competition on on basically three things uh what how how big your population is big countries do better tend tend to do better because they have more people to pick from uh how wealthy you are you need money to develop talent so that's also a, a factor and then how much experience you've got and um in our predictions for the future then we think so obviously, rich, populous countries like Japan and the United States are kind of no-brainers for this, that they ought to really, in the long term, uh, be able to match the performance of the dominant countries. Iraq's much more interesting, though, in some ways. And, and one of the things is that, I mean, for Iraq, read Arab nations in general. Okay. They, the, popu- the popularity of, of, of soccer in the Arab communities is, is absolutely staggering. And... Um, if you look at actually teams from countries like Syria, Palestine, and of course Egypt that we're all looking to in this World Cup, they've, they've done remarkably well given all the obstacles they have to face. And of course, I mean, what they really need is peace and political stability in the right. region, and, and, and then you might see them get really a lot better. Right. Well, you know, the way you describe this, it really does sound like an economist approach to explaining soccer success. But Economists also take flack for missing some of the more psychological variables or some of the more intuitive variables. So you just mentioned the the kind of the level of enthusiasm, the fervor that the Arab world has for soccer. Does that not make it into your models? It may be hard to measure, but I'm sure you tried to work it in there in some way. Right. Well, I mean, I think there's certainly, I mean, it, obviously it's been an issue in, in the U.S. and Japan, actually, for that matter, of, of getting people interested and getting people focused on the sport. Um, but I, I think, uh, I mean, I think I'm not alone in feeling that there's there's change in the air in the United States, and obviously today is a big step forward. But um, uh, really, you know, the, the, the game seems to have a brighter future than ever at the moment, and so in that sense, I think it, it, it may it may be on its way to making to making the breakthrough. Of course, you know, we've, we've had many full storms, so I'll, I'm going to say something revolutionary and shocking. Uh, yes, economists can get it wrong. Um, but that, that, that aside, uh, we still think that these, these trends uh, are likely to work in this direction. We were discussing earlier in the show, um, I, and I, I, I'm kind of wondering if you're as intrigued as we are, about just how the United States, re- in terms of gauging that enthusiasm towards uh, towards soccer, that growing enthusiasm, just how the U.S. actually kind of handles this World Cup with the U.S. not in it. Like, are you kind of curious to sort of see, like, whether, you know, like, TV viewership, like, whether people are actually going out to still watch uh, it? I, I, I know I certainly am. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. I am absolutely fascinated, and, and and can't wait to see the viewing figures. So my guess is, what what we're going to see this time is the total viewership will be 
down a bit compared to 2014, simply because there aren't those big games with the U.S. men's national team in them. But that said, I, 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 my feeling is pretty much every other game, equivalent game, will have a higher audience than it did last time. And that, to some extent, will compensate. And so I don't think it's going to be quite the catastrophe on TV that many people predicted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, you mentioned in the... In the book, you have a chapter on hosting the World Cup, and we've been kind of taking shots at Russia and the advantages they probably have baked in now being the host. But then, you know, news last night or news this morning that the U.S. will be hosting in eight years. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've found in your research on hosting and what it means both for Russia in 2018 and for the U.S. in 2026? Or not just the U.S., it's North America, of course. My bad. Right, of course. Yes, it's the United States. So, um the, uh, the, I mean, the, there is an awful lot of economics research in this area. I've, I've written some of it, but there are a lot of other people who've written a, a good deal of stuff. And, the, and the, the conclusions, I mean, economists agree about very little, but this is one thing we all agree on, and that is that the economic impact of hosting a major sporting event like the economic for the World Cup is negligible. Right. They really have no, no impact. And people make the mistake of confusing, you know, social significance with economic significance. So mm-hmm. something can be something you really care about, but there might not be a lot of money involved in it. And mm-hmm. that's, that's the case with, with, the, with the World Cup. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the amount of money that gets thrown at hosting these things is often a waste of money, largely because once you've hosted these events, there's no event by definition you can have that's as big as it. So right. it's, it, you built in overcapacity. Right. Um, so the, 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 the economic effects are natural, but... So you still have, then the, the economy says, well, if there's no economic effect, why do it at all? And to which the answer is, and again, something that this, this it's only because of the perverse way we, we promote economic concepts to be more important than anything else that this comes as a surprise. But, hey, here's why people host the World Cup, because people like hosting World Cups. Mm-hmm. It's a very popular thing to do. Mm-hmm. Everybody, everybody wants to have the World Cup come to them, and uh, – the uh, Mexico, Canada, and the U.S. will have a ball in 2026, and everybody will be totally thrilled to have it. Only a few curmudgeons, but even even Ann is going to have a great time slanging it off, you know. So, I mean, in that sense, it's it's that it, it, there's plenty of good reasons for hosting the World Cup other than that, can, that it's going to make you rich, which it won't. Um, another sort of thing that you know is, is consequential about that uh, 2026 World Cup and the next one is that they're expanding the field of teams. How do you uh, how do you think that's actually going to kind of impact the World Cup going forward? And how do you think it's going to impact sort of your prediction models? Like, is is there some aspect of of the way you've kind of modeled future success that will be kind of impacted by this kind of like the fact that the, essentially we're going to have a larger, potentially more diluted sort of field of entries? Oh well, let me say something first about prediction models. So I, I do predictions of, of things from time to time, um, and uh, as an economist, as a, as a person driven by data, I think we should do that. We should. I mean, predictions are really just trying to find out, given the information that we have already, what kind of insights do we have about the future? And we should all. I mean, we all do predictions one way or the other. So statisticians just do it in a formal way. So so we should all do predictions, but we should also assess the the the, the likely uh, you know the the, 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 the the quality of the performance of our statistics and how well does our do our analyses predict the future and I'll, I'll tell you this I can I can predict uh, 
uh, which teams are going to win each game in the World Cup. But I can also tell you that my predictions have about a 30% probability of success. Because mm. there's about 70% in any given game of football, which soccer, which, um, which I can't predict. So in, in that sense, all my model, but I think everybody's model, is, is not going to do very well. And, you know, prediction's fun to do. And, it, and as I say, you should do it because it's, it, it's better than nothing. But um, it's worth bearing in mind that these predictions are very good. So when we move to a World Cup of 48, my predictions are probably, I, so they're probably even going to go get worse. So if I get 30% right now, I'm going to go down to 20% when we go to a 48-team World Cup because essentially what it's going to do is... Um, uh, is for each team fewer qualifying games and therefore more randomness of outcomes, which mm-hmm. might make it a lot more fun, um, but, uh, but you will see more random teams going through at the group stage, which, uh, which, which is going to be an interesting consequence of that change. So I, 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 it, I, it's interesting for me to hear you talk about it that way because I don't have great intuition on the distribution of talent across the nation, national teams. And so I, you could have convinced me that by the time you get to 33 through 48, which will be the new additions, that they're so far down that they wouldn't have chances of advancing. But if you're saying, well, oh, they're actually not that separate, and yeah. there's a lot of noise in the game of soccer, and if there's not that separate and, and it's it, noisy. It's also worth noting that um, they're, they're changing the format of the group stage. So it's going to be, I guess, 16 groups of three. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. And then you play three there are three games in the group, and the top team goes through. So um, that that's, ah, that's so what you mean I, I about less that, fewer that's, qualifying games. Yeah. I see, I see, I see. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's so, that round of sixteen yeah, is going to be is going to be an interesting. That's going to be a fun one. It's, but it's like it's it's like uh, it's like the early rounds of the of the men's basketball tournament around here where you get the big guys against the little guys and some chances for some really big upsets. Some big team is going to lose to some little team in the round of 16, and that's going to be the no. that's going to be like day one, day two of the men's tournament. That's interesting. Well, I, I think one of the most interesting things is if it, if it were to be the case that, uh, I, that Brazil and Germany each, either one of them comes first, one of them comes second in their group, then they will play each other in the round of 16. Now, one thing I think is interesting about this is um, most people, if you talk to them outside of the United States, they'll say, yeah, fine, that, that, that's, quite a, that's perfectly fair. <laughs> most Americans I know seem to think that this is, this is an unfair way of deciding things, that somehow top seeds like Brazil and Germany should be kept apart until yeah. the very end of the tournament. So I think, right. that, I think how that pans out will be very interesting. You know, we, I, I haven't thought about that particular wrinkle in this tournament. We talk about it in a way. It's related to whether a league reseeds teams in the playoffs after each round. And some of the professional leagues here in the U.S. reseed so that after every round, they're always going to pit the top remaining seed left against the lowest remaining seed left. Other leagues don't reseed. Yeah. And we kind of celebrate the ones that don't because it introduces some. It, re- it reduces the likelihood of getting the best team through, but it increases variance and kind of fun, fun, crazy. Yeah, matches. I mean, it really is sort of like, um, you know, it's almost like a, metaphysical question or something like that like do you want a a, a playoff competition that like most guarantees that the best team wins or is the most exciting and those two aren't necessarily completely aligned Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That, yeah. That's exactly right. But one of the things interesting, so there, I mean, American statisticians have been writing about this since the 1950s. There are very learned papers in yeah. uh, American statistical journals on, on precisely this issue. But what I, when I've read it, it's always been assumed in American journals that it, by assumption you want the best team to to the to, to win, right? And and that seems to be a particularly American concept, which I, I which if you put this to Europeans, I asked my the friends at the, uh, at the conference here, and they they shrug their shoulders, say, "What what's wrong with that?" Yeah, that's interesting. We're talking to Stefan Samansky. Stefan is the co-author of Soccernomics. Is our new 2018 version of the book out, a new 2018 edition that you should chase down. It's been known and lauded for years now as one of the best books on soccer analytics. Stefan's also professor of sport management at the University of Michigan. Two two other countries that we'd love to hear you talk about. One is Russia. We've been taking lots of shots at Russia. It's easy to take shots at Russia. We'll keep on taking shots at Russia. To what extent do you think soccer is sufficiently corrupt that a corrupt nation like Russia, especially when hosting, <laughs> might be able to gain a few edges here and there? Okay. So just remind me, how much did Ivanka and Jared make last year? What was the what was the total? Oh goodness! Oh goodness! I think yeah. I saw something <laughs> so like 147 million. Right? So, no, right, that, oh, so, so okay. Hold on, Stefan. You're taking shots at the U.S. government, which is totally fair. This is this is <laughs> e- economics studies corruption. It's one of the topics that is studied. It's fair game, political science, political mm-hmm. economics. Yeah. So I don't, you know, we're we're happy to take shots at at all countries, but it. Come on. I mean, soccer has been riddled with corruption scandals and Russia has been riddled with corruption scandals. And now they're hosting the tournament. And am I just blowing something up or do you think there might actually be edges to well, be had? OK, so, so, so let me first say, say this. I was uh, an expert witness for the FBI in the corruption cases in New York just before Christmas. So um, I want to say, first and foremost, that I side with the forces against corruption, and I think corruption is a is a terrible stain on on the game and and a stain on society in general. So so I, I'm totally against corruption. Having said that, I think one has to be a little bit careful here. That so, firstly, if you insist that only non-corrupt nations get to host the World Cup, then I don't know. I think I I think well, probably Iceland. Probably Iceland <laughs> gets to host it a lot. Um, Maybe Denmark, Canada, Canada, Canada. Come on, guys. Canada. Yeah, there'd be a lot of cold northern Protestant <laughs> countries so that would get to do this on a fairly regular basis. Right. Many others. So right. So there's, so there's, okay. so there's that problem. Fair point. Fair um, point. Um, you know, I mean, the, the the World Cup is a history of going to corrupt nations. I mean, I don't know if you think about, I mean, Argentina in 1978 stands out as one of the most appalling. I mean, not just corrupt regimes, okay. but I mean, they were murdering their own citizens in football right. soccer stadiums. So, I okay. mean, it, it, there's, there's an appalling history here. Um, but in in a, in a sense, you know, if you want to have a World Cup, you're going to have to deal with some pretty shady people. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty appalled by Russia. I mean, but but I mean, I think the, the truth is that soccer fans separate the game from the general politics mm-hmm. of the situation. And mm-hmm. going back to the, the Argentina 78, I remember reading about um, political activists say writing and describing their experiences and saying they just, when Argentina won, they didn't know whether to laugh or to cry. Of course, they were delighted that Argentina won, but then they were crying because this was then 
solidifying the the the, the regime. So right. um, I, I think it's not, I think this problem arises pretty much everywhere. Okay, this is a very good perspective. Appreciate that stuff. On another country, wanted to ask you about shows up in the subtitle of your 2018 edition, and that is England. While projecting future success for you know so far unsuccessful countries like the U.S., Iran, and Japan, and continued success for some of the European neighbors, you're saying England's future doesn't look so good. So what's going, <laughs> what's going on there? And then we might segue to the 2018 Cup and ask what you think their prospects are this year. Well, I mean, I mean, our take on England has always been that actually it's not its performance is not that bad. It's a little, it's a couple of notches below where it should be in, in expectation, based on the statistics. And you can attribute that to, to luck or bad judgment as you please. Um, <laughs> but the, but the, the expectations on, on on England are always so vast and so unrealistic okay. um, that that's why it causes all this disappointment. So, I mean, I would think, I mean, a reasonable expectation for this England team is to get to the quarterfinals. If they get to the quarterfinals, they'll have done okay to well. Okay. Um, uh, they're completely capable of disappointing on that expectation. And once you get to the quarterfinals, you can win the whole thing. So um, as long as we don't have to play Iceland, we'll be fine. <laughs> so how is it that a country can maintain, you just said, you know, out, outsized expectations year over year? I mean, at some point, wouldn't they adjust? Where do those outsized expectations come from? <laughs> You don't know a lot of Brits then, right? Well, I mean, it, you know, our, we grow up saying this is our game. It belongs to us, you know. And, and I mean, actually, not a, quite a few countries have the same kind of thing. And actually, nowadays, Germans feel they own the game. Brazilians feel they own the game. Uh, Argentinians feel they own the game. Italians feel they own Lots of countries actually now have a sense of ownership of soccer, which is quite interesting. That and one of the reasons why it is such a global sport is because actually um, – in many ways, nobody actually really owns it. Nobody has an, has an overarching right. game. Like, if we were talking about cricket, I mean, you know, then, then the British really do own cricket. That's mm-hmm. ours. And then when you talk about, uh, if we talk about uh, football, your football, then, then, then you really own that, or baseball. Yeah. That, 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 that you can't argue with. But, but soccer is interesting because actually everybody most people manage to feel in most countries that they have some kind of ownership stake. However, we Brits will go to our grave saying, we invented this game, we own it. It's ours. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, that, <laughs> and what, that's where you get unrealistic expectations. And then what What role does the, the... Did they win the Cup in 50 or 52? What was this, like, the shocking win? 66. Six, oh, 66, okay. 66, England? That wasn't a shock. We, we they were the host country, so I guess we were. There was no shock. <laughs> Maybe I flipped it around. Maybe the U.S. beat England in the fifties in South America somewhere. That's the, 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 the oh the U.S. the U.S. against England in nineteen fifty. That was the first World Cup England ever deigned to enter. So b- before nineteen fifty, the English considered <laughs> the World Cup beneath them because we were obviously the best. And so they agreed to join uh-huh. in nineteen fifty, assuming we were going to walk and win it, and we got drawn in a group with. The United States of America. So that was going to be absolutely easy. We were going to thrash you and then move on. Right. Turns out that it didn't quite work out like that. We (laughs) lost 1 0. 1 0. Uh, and we we have not forgotten it either. Americans have not forgotten it, but the British and the English have not forgotten it. And the Scots still enjoy teasing the English about it. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. (laughs) Stefan, how does your your research and background? affect the way you consume soccer. So mostly we've been talking about your work on a macro level. 
but I'm sure you're involved in the analytics of the game itself. And but you also sound like a born and raised soccer fan. So when it comes to consuming the cup over the next few weeks, how will that be different because of the work that you do? Well, if at all. So, it, yeah, I mean, I, in, in over the years, I mean, I, I've probably become a bit more of a soccer fan than I ever was, um, partly because of research, actually following it a bit more. Um, I've never thought of it as being my sort of first sport, and I like it. And uh, you know, uh, uh, it, but but uh, it's not it's not a it's not a, an obsession. So, okay. um, and I think that's always been a help with my research because I think sometimes if you're too committed or too involved with it, then you don't have that kind of. Um, objective eye to see to, to try and see what's really going on but, mm-hmm. um, i mean i'll be watching plenty of the games um uh and and uh, i mean i'll enjoy it I, I like i like watching the good games um and i like watching some of the reactions and seeing what's going on i mean part of it i think is always about perspective as well i mean i think one of the things that the world cup helps you do is is get a perspective from from other countries because i think it's so easy to get drawn into seeing things only from your local wherever you have oh that's be. good right the parochialism and so i think that's one thing good great thing about the world cup so it helped me think a bit more broadly and maybe 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 trigger some thoughts of, about things that, that i hadn't hadn't really worked on my radar in the u.s or the mm-hmm. uk mm-hmm. do you have sympathies that go beyond england is there is there a team out there that you'll be following with an extra with an extra interest well my name's shemansky so you can guess that that's got to have some loyalty there right so i'd be following the polish team mm-hmm. all right yeah I, I was born in nigeria so ah. go mighty eagles ah. uh, poland's got uh, yeah. a pretty wide open group too they could they could make some noise yeah, Poland's 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 going to have some good chances this this year. So I mean, again, Poland's a bit like England. <laughs> in matches, they've had a lot of great teams that were supposed to do things and things didn't happen. So you know, uh, we'll see. Well, listen, we wish you Ever the best, optimistic. Stefan. We wish you the best with the new edition of the book and with the World Cup and these three three teams you'll be pulling for over the next few weeks. Appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. You bet. Stefan Szymanski is a professor of sport management at the University of Michigan. He's also co-author of Soccernomics. I think it's a 2009 book or so, one of the best books out there on soccer analytics with a new 2018 edition that you should chase down. Stefan Szymanski. That is three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics Every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. Kate Massey hosting this morning with my buddy Shane Jensen. Dion Simpkins on the soundboard. Associate producer Dion Simpkins bringing us up out of the bottom of the last hour. Dion sporting his orange Beats by Dre, always making us jealous. Maddie, when are we going to get some non-Radio Shack headphones and get some beats in here. All right? We've been doing the show for four years. Seriously. I, I, I probably, I probably sound so much better than I sound to myself. <laughs> Dion, man, the king of the show. Uh, we are just off the phone with Stefan Szymanski. That's a great segment. Thoroughly yep. enjoyed. But we might have talked about it World Cup enough. We might have covered it enough for this show. We might have some other sports to talk about. We're going to talk about baseball because Shane cares about baseball. We're going to talk about college football. <laughs> we're going to find some college football to talk about. Yeah. And we're going to talk about golf. U.S. Open, man. This is like a deal. The second yeah. major of the year snuck up on us all of a sudden. We haven't even talked about the French Open. They just played this tennis they did. tournament. They did. 
They did. Oh, um, it was a surprising victor. Yeah. 11 times. I guess you kind of get used to it, start taking it for granted. Maybe. Bit. Maybe a little bit. Nadal's, yeah. Nadal's got his... Uh, I was listening to I you mean, guys. It's impre- I, I mean, it's it's incredibly impressive. I just don't think it's particularly... After 10 times, you know, it, it starts to... Maybe, maybe no, we, some of the excitement wears off. It does, I don't know. but we can't short him. I no, mean, no, that's I mean, right. I mean, we, we it's very impressive. Is this the most anybody's ever won one of the majors? It must be, right? Unless, it like, must be. You know, Margaret Court won something. I can't would... feel like, or, or, or Sampras, somebody, somebody won Wimbledon a lot of times, like in relatively recent memory, but, like, it's not. Back in the day, it was Bjorn Borg. Was yeah. it five times in the 70s or whatever? I think Pete Sampras won it, like, something like six or seven. MSL, okay. So. All right. Well, um, and then on but the. But still, the... I mean, no, I, I think that this kind of dominance is, is, is relatively unparalleled. Sloan Stevens made the final, but didn't quite get it done. Against she dropped against the number one. She took the first set, but then lost yeah. the match against the number one seed. Um, has Stevens won a major? That would have been her first one, right? That 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 was a bit of a thing. She'll get there. Um, all right, U.S. Open. What do we know about the U.S. Open? And I've I've got a, a you know my 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 buddy and collaborator Rufus Peabody. I like to say Rufus is the world's best mm-hmm. golf better. And I like to say it for two reasons. One, it's, you know, it's absurd to say such a thing. Who, how are you going to prove it? Yeah. But two, it just might be true because he is that good. Yeah. So I just shot Rufus. It'll note. God knows where in the world Rufus is at the moment. I think it's in the Southern Hemisphere. He says, uh, I say, give us a pick. Give us some insight, Rufus, on what's going on. He says, uh, a lot of guys playing well right now. Could be anybody. But his top two picks, who do you think they're going to be? Well, one of them's obvious, one's obvious, and one is not obvious. So Dustin Johnson would be the obvious you one, you it. would say? You got it. Dustin's yeah. one of his picks at 12 to 1. Because, you know, Rufus is going to consider the odds here when he's saying who his picks are. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, it's. I think it's, I, I think it's worth just pausing and noting, as we often do, that even if one has a favorite in, in, in golf— you can't give that high a probability to any one player, right? No, you know, so gosh, I mean, no. e- even even the most favored person, say it's Dustin Johnson, is going to have relatively long odds for actually being the one holding the trophy at the end, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or the right. giant he, check, or whatever right. they hold at the he's end. He's the of favorite, but he's but he's plus nine hundred. Yeah. We're getting we're we're hearing plus nine hundred. Even Rufus yeah. reported twelve to one. Um, his other pick is Justin Rose. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Justin's been in. You know, Rose has been in. You know, he's been competitive the last couple of years. He's been one of the, I don't know, circle of six or eight guys mm-hmm. um, in the last couple of years. He, you know, I, I always remember him as the, the, from his first British, I think he, he was very competitive as an amateur and he converted to pro as a, as a kid, essentially. Yeah. So he's been playing professional golf since he's about 18 years old. And it took him, even though he, he started out kind of flashy in that early British Open. It took him a while to reach the level that he's reached. A long time, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's been a long time. Yeah. But he's been a top ten guy for a while now. I love to see him at at such a at such a favorite spot for for Rufus. Who now else? remind me, he has not actually won a major tournament yet, has he? Oh, good question. I think he has. Okay. I, say, I think he has. Like a PGA I could be, championship I could or something wrong. like that somewhere I don't in there. Not a PGA. I could be wrong. Matt's going to tell okay. us in just a second. Um, other leading contenders. The odds that we're getting from Matty Dats are Dustin Johnson at plus 900. McElroy, Rory, when are we going to see Rory do it again at plus 1100? Spieth, the the Texan, the, mm-hmm. the, the golden boy of a few years ago coming in. Yeah, he was supposed 14. to. Well, 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 what happened? Yeah, what happened? I, don't know, he well, chucked, I mean, he chucked did. Chucked a few in the water on yeah, number, he did. What, number 12. 
I was hoping he'd kind of recover from that. Maybe he still will. He has recovered, but he just it kind of stalled his momentum. Yeah. He was unbeatable. Yeah. He was like the kid who yeah, didn't he was, know. Yeah, we were talking about him like, oh, could this guy kind of like, you know, make a run towards the more like Tiger Jack Nicholas kind of company? And, and obviously it stalled out on that momentum. It, it felt like he was young and dumb in kind of the good sense of the word. Yeah. He didn't know. He had never been beaten. He'd never yeah. kind of crumbled before. And that mental invincibility can mm-hmm. be helpful yeah. up until the point that you actually crumble. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, we, we've we talked a lot on the show um, about this kind of idea that in golf, uh, your memory for the bad moments is longer than your memory for the good ones, totally, right? So, totally. Yeah. And unfortunately, I mean, this is another reason why sometimes it's advantageous to be young. I'm actually kind of fascinated by this question because people talk about experience being good mm-hmm. and it, it kind of levels you out and calms you. But also, the longer you've played, the more you've screwed things up. Yeah. And if your memory is, in fact, asymmetric. That yeah. They, that and, they, and, I mean, again, golf is such a unique sort of uh, evaluation of things like stress and anxiety. I mean, people, psychologists really should, of all sports, study golf, right? Because it's it, you you are sort of – it's it's relatively isolated personal performance. I mean, there is some context because, you know, people are doing stuff around you. But it's relatively isolated personal performance. And you really are just like kind of the center of attention, <laughs> right? So the pre- I mean, I can't imagine more high pressure situations. No, it's right? incredible. We've, I've, yeah, I've, 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 I mean, you can create similar high pressure situations, like that occasionally happen within team sports, like you know, bottom of the ninth, blah blah yeah. blah. But yeah. it's kind of kind of like you know, for the entire second half of like you know the last day on the Masters, it's it's basically just continual, right? Like every Good, single shot, right. you've got that pressure. That's right. It's hours, but also yeah. it's a it's a much more complex set of movements, and mm-hmm. that has to translate. I yeah. mean, if you're batting, I know. I mean, batting involves some thinking. Yeah. yeah. But at the moment, you're responding instinctively to in, in split seconds. Golf, you're initiating this thing that involves how many God knows different oh, muscle it's, it, movements. It, it's a complicated movement that I have never personally mastered all but that well. Now try, now try to master it under that no, kind of I, pressure. I, I, I mean, don't, I wouldn't even conceive of it. I have a buddy who's just you know in these in these in these in these in these crunch time. I mean, moments. my 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 pressure is that first like tee off of, you know where people are actually you know like you're waiting you're waiting Seriously. for the first base and you've actually got like a little crowd because like there's a little bit of lineup and you got a tee I, I always fall. I mean, it's, it's always it's always like I'm lucky if I can make it 50 feet with that first tee shot <laughs> it always goes off to the side we, and like we doesn't pl- get on in the air we we played over at uh, in Scotland a few years ago and we made it out um, to some of the big courses and some of those courses you have you know, entire crowds watching you on the first tee. And it's not good. and you've been looking at this course your entire life. Yeah. And you're thinking, can I, you know, can I even get it off the tee box? And yeah. what, what the hell is going to happen if I don't? But, and, but, but that gives you a taste of yeah. it. This is the point. You get a little taste and you think, how do those guys do it? When they have to execute it with so many more people watching. Yeah. Okay. So what we learned is Justin Rose does have a major. He won the 2013 U.S. Open. We also learned he's 37, which means he's, we've been watching him for like wow. 20, 20 years, yeah, which is amazing. Yeah, he is. All right. All right. Okay. But a few other contenders. Justin Thomas was number one in the world for a long time. I think Dustin Johnson just grabbed that spot again. But Justin Thomas is, you know, number five or so on the roster at plus 14. And then someone we haven't mentioned, which if Bradlow is here, it was, we'd have led with this name. Tiger Woods yeah. is in the mix, at least as far as the gamblers yeah. are concerned. Yeah, sports okay. Books are what, concerned. what are his odds? Plus 16. Okay. P- plus 1,600. So Tiger, Jason Day, and Ricky Fowler, all kind of in the yeah. same. If that's true, and it won't be, but it, you know, if it's even approximately true, 
It's impressive that Woods has gotten his game yeah. back in that kind of. You're shape. saying it won't be just because of the historical kind of over. Yeah, people are over, overbetting him. You know yeah. they're overbetting him. Yeah. It just has to be the case. Yeah, yeah. So uh, doing analytics, this, our our U.S. Open analytics for the Shinnecock is 90 miles east of New York City. Who even knew you could have a golf course 90 miles east of New York City? Only yeah, New Yeah, I, I thought it would be very, very you think wet that'd be a and salty wet? by oh. that point, you know, but yeah. That's Long Island for you. Yeah. It's way out there. Okay. But it, that thing's hosted like five U.S. Opens, and so yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a well-established. It's a well-established course. Many people love it. Should be a fun weekend out there. <clears throat> Shane, tell me about baseball. We've got a few minutes before we hit the over-under segment. Well, I mean, you know, we're, we're – uh, We've got I, – I feel like sort of over the last few weeks, you know, some things have kind of like normalized relative to our, 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 our preseason norms. You know, I mean, for example, the Dodgers are, are, are starting to kind of climb back into competitiveness, which, you know, kind of we expected. Same thing with the Nationals. Because I mean, the I think, Dodgers were one of the biggest disappointments for the first month or two of the Yeah, season. that's right. That's right. I, I, I mean, we, we sort of handed that division. I mean, we, we, we had very little uncertainty about who was going to win the NL West this year. It was going to be the Dodgers, but of course they have not played like they were going to win the NL West, but now they're kind of climbing back in. Same thing with the Cubs. I, but I think the sort of interesting thing right now still is we're over a third way in the season, and the Atlanta Braves are one of the top teams in baseball, which nobody would have predicted. That's right. out of nowhere. Milwaukee Brewers, one of the top teams in baseball. Again, kind of out of nowhere. And it, every season there is one or two teams out of nowhere. It's just, you know, Milwaukee and Atlanta are those teams this year. You know, the Brewers are an interesting example. Yeah. They're 40 and 27 so far. The projection for the rest of the year, according to Fangrass, 46 and 49. So not even quite 500 ball. Yeah, yeah. So that's something about the record they've played or the chance that they've been on the positive side of so far. Fangraphs has Yankees as the, as the highest projected win total, but mm-hmm. they're really right there. Yankees, Astros, and Sox, yeah. you know, lap in the field in terms of projected win totals. Yankees at 102, Astros and Red Sox at 101. That that AL East division race, oh, good it's amazing. It's amazing. And, you know, I, I, it's, <laughs> the poor Orioles are just going to get beaten up on all year, it looks like. Seriously. Yeah. Now, speaking of, I mean, how, how are the, uh, how's Toronto doing? Toronto is doing as you know not not particularly well. I mean, they're certainly disappointing. I think relative to some people's expectations. Part of that is, I think you know, both the Yankees and Red having both the Yankees and right. Red Sox and having to play those guys like nineteen games right. each or right. something like that. That's going to diminish I mean, your expectations a little bit. But for, I mean, even even that said, I think they're having uh, I think uh, a disappointing season. Well, for people who don't know, Mark Shapiro uh, is the top guy with yeah. the Jays, and he, of course, was one of the guys who built. The Indians. The Indians. And the Indians are kind of an analytics darling Mm -hmm. and um, a great organization. He left it. He almost left because what else was there to do? He built built it. And when you build a baseball organization, you're talking about all the way down. And you've got a farm system, a minor league team, an organizational culture. And that's what Mark is trying to get done with the Blue Jays. So I'm always pulling for those guys. And, and, you know, and and my my buddy Joe Simmons, who has lifelong interest in the Orioles, has pulled me to the Orioles. And so I'm pulling for these two teams. Teams who are in not, the same division not, not as the Yankees and good the Red timing. Sox. Yeah, no, no not brutal. Maybe not this year. No, it's not good timing. It's never good timing. It's not a question of oh, timing. That's the not same true. division as the that's Yankees and Red Sox. I mean, Toronto uh, went to went to the playoffs yeah. just a couple years yeah, ago. And the O's have had some good seasons. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, the Yankees and Red. I mean, you know, it's a tough division. Let's let's it's not a tough division. Right? No, it, it's always a tough division because you've got two of the highest payroll teams. And consistently, but I mean that that high payroll does not translate consistently into success. I mean, you know, it's it's been 
it's been a while since this Yankees Red Sox like a, rivalry actually was sort of like particularly consequential. But but it's kind of the opposite. What's the opposite of a joint probability? Yeah. Just, just joint probability. I mean, yeah. the likelihood that one of those teams is going to be quite good. You can do it. That's is, right. That's is, right. It's quite good. Yeah. All right. So rolling into the home stretch here, we'd like to do the final segment. It's Wharton Moneyball's over under. So Shane, I'll let you drive the bus here on the last right. segment. Well, let's. Uh, we talked a little bit of golf. Let's do. Let's do uh, one for the U.S. Open. So seven point five Tiger Woods finish at the U.S. Open. Over. You're going to take an over. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah that was that was not that was not even hard. So I'm just you think trying he's, to short. I short. Yeah. I short Tiger. I, I mean, I, I I'm impressed with what he's done. I believe he's actually competitive now. Yeah. But I can. I mean, people, but there's a lot of really that, good golfers out there. That, he's definitely. You don't see him as a top ten player right now. No, and I think the hype is always going to push it up further than it deserves to be. Yeah. So between those two things, no. I'll, I mean, come on. The top seven in in, in a major uh, the U.S. Open with how the good the field is right now. No, definitely right. definitely over for me. All right. Where are you on that? Well, I was going to say. I mean. I was going to take under for purely for for all the sentimental reasons you just dispelled. So I'm going to stick with under, but you you've not made me particularly confident in it with your expert analysis. There. All right, it's all right. So um, more instinctive than expert. Okay, so um, we didn't get a chance to talk uh, college football very right. much, which well, is a little could, sad. They'll but probably like, let us run over. If yeah, we, we could ask. Yeah. Can we get an extra half hour, Matt? Please. All right. Dan doesn't mind. All right. So. All right. So looking ahead, I mean, obviously, this is going to be something we're going to be mulling over the next little while, and it's obviously fascinating every year. But 1.5 SEC teams in the college football playoff. You know, I'm so biased here that my immediate reaction is, no, can't be before no. a second year in a row. So who would those teams be? Alabama, presumably. Yeah, I think in my, my read on the schedule is that Alabama's got a, almost a cakewalk to the SEC final. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they didn't even win the SEC last year and got pulled into the yeah. championship. And so... Um, so so play. basically they were, they're almost an auto entry. It's not quite auto, yeah. they're, they're, but yeah. but they, they're they not going to see much competition during the regular season. So the question is whether there's a second team. Many people think Georgia is about as good as Alabama this year. Auburn is one of, is a top five or six team in the country. Now, they're in the same division as Alabama, and so unlikely that both of them will come through. Mm-hmm. But Georgia, that SEC East is still weak. It's not as weak as it has been, but it's still weak. So Georgia doesn't have it as easy as Alabama, but they don't have that much to get to the mm-hmm. SEC title game. So, so I got mean, some good contenders. Yeah. It's a really good question, one and a half. I, but, but basically we're looking at a high probability that both teams from that SEC champion title game go. To the well, it foot. depends on what happens yeah. beforehand and how impressed yeah. people are like, with if them they, beforehand. If they both go in undefeated, for example. Yeah. And, that, and, and it play, right. they play a very competitive game. You know, and there's so much SEC love out yeah. there. It's hard for people to see an undefeated team and not believe that it's going to yeah. happen. But you do have to ask what else is going on around the country. So Clemson is our, for the first time, the number one team coming into the preseason. For us. Our preseason right. is not Alabama. That's a change. Ohio State's supposed to be legit. Washington is full-on legit. Okay. They were, okay. they were, they were, you know, new to the scene again last year. They're legit this year. They're going to play an early season game against Auburn. We're going to find out about both of those two okay. teams. Given the unlikelihood of both of them getting all the way to the final, to the SEC title undefeated, given the strength of some big teams around the country, I'm going under. Ah, nice, nice, nice. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'll, I'll defer to you on that one. That sounds like uh, the more a more well-reasoned analysis than I could contribute. So, all right, so 
Um, now we'll do one that sort of spans across a little bit of sports. So, okay, 2.5 combined championships for LeBron, Brady, and Ovechkin. Future. 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 Because well, yes. they've got 14. Yeah, they've got, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, 2.5 combined future championships for LeBron, Brady, and Ovechkin. And just for information, LeBron's 33 years old, Brady's 40, and Ovechkin is 32. Mm. So let's just talk it through a little bit. Ovechkin just won his first one. Apparently it's hard to win you know, no matter yes. how good you are. Yeah, I'm gonna, that's right. I'm, I don't know how much. He's 32, which is he's the youngest of these guys. But, yeah. Um, I don't know. He's, people, I feel like in this one we're going to have to lean on LeBron a lot. This is really a kind of – because, I mean, Brady – you know, I would love it for. I just don't see any more championships for Brady. None, I mean, I, none, none. Wow, this from the Pats guy. Well, I, yeah, I mean, you know, you I think mean, the dynasty's over. I think the dynasty's over. Oh my goodness! Yes, I think you so. say that pretty easily. That's... Well, I, you know, I just, you know, I mean, I, I sort of see every year that Brady somehow still plays at this like high level to be kind of you know a, a treat yeah but I, I i i've stopped expecting it certainly okay so we're, we, we're so i mean maybe you could like see like half a half, half a championship half for, for brady. brady maybe a half a championship maybe for, for ovechkin maybe a half for ovechkin yeah. that leaves us can lebron do one and a half yeah and i yeah i think so i think so too i mean he's, it he's really obviously of, does he's gonna, depend he's where he ends up yeah. as long as he doesn't stay in cleveland yeah uh, and i mean if he goes to la i think that but what if Paul George joins in yeah, from OKC? Yeah, true, true. I just don't want the Lakers to suddenly be a team again. But I yeah. think I think he'd have better chances um, if he was out here or if he went to Houston. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Okay, but can he get one and a half? Yes, I'm going to say yes. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. we're going to give a half to Ovechkin, half to Brady. We're going to give two yeah. to LeBron, and we're going to go we're both, over. I, I'm going over as well. I agree. Right. I agree with that logic. Interesting. All right, that was an interesting one. What else you got? We got time for one more. Um, okay, 600 uh, home runs for Mike Trout. I don't even know what that means. Where it would be very big. It would be very big. Uh, it would be. Okay, he's 26 years numbers, old, and he's hit 224 what already. What numbers do I have to work with in my head? Aren't Henry Aaron's in the 700s? Yeah, no? and, and Bonds. And Bonds is yeah. in the 700s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. so, so he would be in very elite company. Um, with that, I think he does it. I, th- What's I, I the think extrapolation right now? Just the, like the... You know, the, not I just I thought oh, even the, the linear extrapolation, the linear extrapolation. Has them far over. I mean, so far. so really, you you the, this this six hundred figure I think does incorporate basically the kind of variance of an injury. Well, well certainly like a, a a decay, a non-linear decay, which most people do experience. Yeah. Um, as well as you know potential injuries. I mean, because so, he he seemed up until last season he was also you know infallible as far as injuries go. Let's but. do how how many years has he been playing? He's got two hundred twenty four. He's been playing how many years in the majors? Um, five, six, six, six. So is is that about 35, 30, 30 Yeah, no, about thirty five a year. Yeah, and he probably has ten. He probably has twelve productive years, but he's not going to get all of it. But if he if he had yeah. twelve at thirty five, that's another three ninety, yeah. which takes him just over six hundred. Yeah, that's right. I'm going under. You're going under. Yeah, injuries alone. Yeah, injuries alone. No, it's it's true, and it, it it takes it takes a lot to kind of get to that kind of level. Over, so over, I'm under taking it over. You're I'm taking it over. over. Right. He's we had some good discrepancies on that one. All right. All right. Well, listen, that has been another Wharton Moneyball two hours of. Sports Analytics here live every Wednesday morning. This was Cade Massey hosting with Shane Jensen. Enjoyed the two hours with you, Shane. Deion Simpkins, thank you. Maddie Dats, thank you. Listeners, thank you. Our guest, thoroughly enjoyed those conversations. We will be back here next Wednesday live. Come back and join us. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. 
This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. 